doctors, uh, nurses, uh, healthcare professionals of all types and stripes, and EMTs, they all have something uh, very important in common. And, and the thing that all of those people have in common is that whenever they enter into a room or whenever they show up onto the scene, uh, they don't show up to assess guilt and they don't show up in that moment to assign blame and they don't show up in that moment to appropriate justice. Uh, when a doctor walks into a trauma room that may be full of people who've just gone through a traumatic experience, the doctor is not there to assess who's guilty, to assign blame or to appropriate justice. When healthcare professionals or EMTs show up on the scene and there's a tragedy and there's carnage and there's all of this just horrible stuff in front of them, they're not there to assess guilt. They're not there to assign blame and they're not there to appropriate justice. Those people don't show up and walk into a room and show up on the scene to judge. They don't show up in that moment to condemn. They don't show up in that moment to give a lecture. They don't show up in that moment to insult. But in that moment, when they walk into a room or they step onto the scene, they are there for one reason and one reason only, and that is to save lives. And in that moment, when they walk into the room or they step on the scene, it doesn't matter who it is. And it doesn't matter what they've done because the mission and the task is very clear, save the life. So they rush to the aid of maybe someone who's drowning or someone who's bleeding or someone who's injured or someone who's wounded. And it doesn't matter whether they're innocent or guilty because there's a higher calling, there's a greater mission. And so whoever the person is and whatever the circumstance may be, they're there to save a life. Now. Today, we're continuing on in this series that we've been in for the past few weeks called The Kingdom. And in this series, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And we've been tracking through Matthew as Matthew records, you know, when Jesus stepped onto the pages of history and when Jesus stepped into the public, you know, spotlight, that Jesus seemingly had one message, one message only. He said a lot of different things, but basically his message was always the same. It was, it was the one thing that he couldn't stop talking about. Uh, he was always talking about it on any given day in any given place to any group of people. Uh, it was the thing that Jesus talked about more than anything else, but so many of us have not really ever had any meaningful discussions about it and we've not heard really any meaningful conversations about it inside the church, though it was the thing that Jesus talked more about than anything else. Here's how Matthew records it. He says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And again, if you're new to the series, this was Jesus's way of saying, stop, listen, something has happened that's gonna change everything. Something has changed that's gonna cause you to rethink everything you think you know about life, about yourself, about others, about the world, about God. Uh, something has happened that's gonna invite you to reorganize your life around a new set of values, a, a new set of ethics that's based on a brand new vision for what life could look like and should look like, what your life should look like, what my life should look like. And this new vision, this new vision for life is gonna frame our existence as human beings with both meaning and purpose. It's gonna remind us that we are just not accidental products of the universe. We're not just products of an unguided process that happened in nature once upon a time. That our lives, your life, my life, every life has meaning and purpose. And this new vision, that Jesus is inviting us to embrace, gives us a new perspective on how to see the world, the evil that's in the world, our place in the world. And even it offers us hope for the future of the world. And that something that had happened, according to Jesus, 
was that the kingdom of heaven had come near, the kingdom of God had come near. This was Jesus's way of announcing a brand new era. This was Jesus's way of saying, there's been a turning point in the story, the larger story that began thousands of years in the, uh, before in the Old Testament. This was Jesus's way of saying, God has done something extraordinary and God has done something unique in the world. God has done something new because heaven in some way had began to invade the earth. Heaven was in some way intruding upon the earth and nothing would ever be the same. And so Matthew, he picks up on this story that Jesus just kept talking about and this message that Jesus kept referring to over and over again. And he used it as the driving force of his gospel or his biography uh, of Jesus's life. And so every page where you're reading the gospel of Matthew, always keep in mind that this was Matthew's big idea. The kingdom had come near because the king had come near and there would be no neutral ground. And so as we understand the story that he's trying to tell, it helps us read the story and it helps us understand the story. Matthew starts in chapters one and two, and he talks about the Magi, you know, the wise men, King Herod, evil King Herod. And he talks about the newborn King of the Jews. It's a passage that most of the time we, we reserve for Christmas, but there's more to the story that Matthew is wanting to tell other than there was a newborn King of the Jews in Bethlehem more than just someone who was a descendant of David who had a rightful claim to the throne of Israel. But Matthew, he saw the birth of this child. He saw the arrival of this child in Bethlehem as heaven invading the earth, heaven intruding upon the earth. And so when he, he got finished talking about, you know, those passages we typically read at Christmas, uh, he says this, and this is, this is important as we launch into what we're talking about today. He said, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew says, I wanna tell you from the very beginning that the story that I wanna tell is not merely just a story about a carpenter from Nazareth. It's just not a story about a first century rabbi who said some quotable and notable things. It's just not the story of an innocent man who got put to death and publicly executed by the Jewish temple and the Roman empire. Matthew would say, I'm trying to tell you the story of how God closed the distance between himself and humanity and how God has been chasing after us and how God has been chasing after you and God has been chasing after you and after me, not to pay us back, but to win us back. And so Matthew, he gives us this, this, this reference point. He gives us this anchoring to remind us that God came to be with us to reveal himself to us that God came to be with us to reveal himself to us. It was Jesus who would say, when you've seen me, you've seen what? The Father. When, when you've seen me, you've seen God. And so Jesus would say, if you wanna know what God's like, look at me. If you wanna know what God's like, listen to me. If you wanna know what God is like, pay attention to me. And every action, every reaction, every interaction that Jesus has in the Gospel of Matthew is Matthew's literary you know, device of saying, he's revealing what God is like. Every action, reaction, and interaction is Jesus teaching us what God is really like. Because when Jesus showed up on the planet, he didn't claim to have the best explanation of God. He claimed to be the best explanation of God. That's who he was, that's who he claimed to be. And Jesus, he wanted to reveal God to us so that we wouldn't create a God of our own making, so that we wouldn't create a version of God that would suit us because left to ourselves, left to yourself, me left to myself, I will be very tempted to create a version of God that suits me, that suits how I want to live, that suits you know, allowing me to do what I wanna do. 
So Jesus said, I want to reveal to you what the Father's like so that you don't create a version of God that will allow you to mistreat other people because there's a lot of people who have a version of God that allows them to mistreat people. And he said, I, I wanna show you what God is really like because when you understand what God is really like, you won't feel the liberty to mistreat people. I, I wanna show you what God is really like, Jesus would say, so that you're not left to your own imaginations and to your own speculation, so that you're just not sitting around and shooting the bull and, and what if and hope so, maybe so. Jesus came to set you free and me free from the lies that many of us have believed about God. Lies that have robbed many of us of life rather than infused us with life. A lot of us grew up in church, a lot of us grew up around Christians and somewhere along the way, a lot of us, and we didn't even know it. And some of us, we still don't even know it, but we came along and we grew up and we came into adulthood carrying around some lies about God that we didn't even know were lies. And Jesus came, Jesus came to correct our misunderstandings about God that were tied to miscommunications about God or misrepresentations of God. Jesus came so that we might draw every idea that we have about God from him. Jesus came that we might use him and him only as an interpretation of who God is and what God is like. So Matthew, Matthew's basically saying this to us. He's getting in our business a little bit. And he says, if your ideas about God don't look like Jesus, you have the wrong ideas about God. So if the ideas that you're carrying around, the images that you carry around about God and what he's like and how he feels and what he thinks and what he would say, if your ideas about God don't look like Jesus, Matthew would say, I wanna tell you from the very beginning of the story, you have the wrong idea about God. And Jesus came to correct those ideas if you will let him. In other words, Jesus is what God looks like. And when Jesus came preaching and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, the kingdom of God has come near, the reason that the kingdom of God had come near was because God himself had come near. And so Matthew, he, he continues this story and he says, Jesus went throughout Galilee and he was teaching in their synagogues and he was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So in the next five chapters, uh, Matthew 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, Matthew takes, his, those, takes those five chapters and he unpacks what he means by this one particular verse. In chapters five, six, and seven that we talked about last week, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, the Sermon on the Mount, it's just the ethics and the values that flow out of God's one command, God's one law in his kingdom. God's kingdom only has one law and that's to love God and love others. And the Sermon on the Mount is simply what life looks like when we get that right. This was Jesus's vision for our best life. This was Jesus's vision for how to be truly fulfilled and contented in this life, is to live by these values and live by these ethics. So that was the Sermon on the Mount. And then chapters eight and nine, he just throws in as many samples of the miracles that Jesus performed as he could possibly fit in. To say, these are not random acts of kindness. These are pictures and promises of what the kingdom of God will one day look like when God forever deals with sin, sorrow, suffering, and death. And so he puts all of that in chapters five, six, seven, eight, and nine. And then at the close of that section, he uses almost identical words as what he uses in chapter four. He uses it as bookends to draw attention to what he's trying to say in this portion of his biography. And so listen to how he puts it in chapter nine, verse 35. He said, Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, right? Almost the same thing. Teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Jesus was known for not just news, but Jesus was known for good news. 
And I'm really troubled. I'm really, I'm, I'm irked. That's a Greek word, I guess. I'm irked, maybe it's Hebrew. I'm irked, I'm ticked. I I get a little upset and a little, you know, borderline just frustrated uh, about the fact that when people think of the church in this country and when people think of the church in many communities and maybe even ours, that too many people, when they think about the church and they think about Christians and they think about our message, I don't know if the first thing that comes to their mind is good news. If what people think when they hear our message is anything but good news, we're telling it wrong. If it's just news, if it's just so-so news, if it's mediocre news, if it's bad news, it's not good news. And the thing that Jesus was known for was good news. And it was good news because it was for everybody. It was everybody. This news is for you. There's just not some over here and some over there and it's just not the good people or the righteous people or the religious people or the spiritual people. It was good news for everybody. And what people heard when Jesus spoke, think about this. What people heard when Jesus spoke, it did not sound oppressive. It did not sound like a burden. It did not sound restrictive, but it sounded like freedom. And it sounded like rest. Because Jesus would say, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And when people heard what Jesus had to say, they wanted to lean in. They wanted to hear more because If this was true, it was good news indeed. It was such good news, it almost sounded too good to be true. People would listen and Jesus would begin to teach and Jesus taught that God loves you. God loves all of you. And even if you don't love God, Jesus taught God loves you anyway. God loves you no matter who you are and God loves you no matter what you've done. God loves you in such a way there's actually nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. And this good news that Jesus went around preaching from town to town, in and out of synagogues was that there is room in God's family for you. There is a seat at God's table for you. There is room in the family of God. And Jesus would say, I'm inviting you into it. There is a seat at God's table and I'm inviting you to it. And this was such good news because this invitation went out to everyone. This invitation went out to whosoever, no matter who, no matter what. Because there was this good news that there was forgiveness that was greater than any of my failures. That there was this forgiveness that was greater than any of your failures. That God's mercy was in some way greater than any mess that I could make of my life. That his mercy was so much greater than any mess that I could make in my family's life. That God's grace, God's grace, it was greater than any of my guilt. You take all the things that I'm guilty of, all the things that I'm guilty for, and you put them on a sheet and God's grace is greater still. It it was the good news that there's no bounds, there's no limits, there's no prerequisite. There, there's no conditions, there, there's, no, there, there's no restrictions to God's love, to his mercy or his grace. And if that was true, and if that is true, <laughs> that is good news indeed. The good news that when God's love comes up against my sin, God's love wins every single time. You see, the good news, the good news is unthinkable. It was unthinkable, it is unthinkable. It will always be unthinkable because it makes the love of God unconditional. And unconditional love feels dangerous. Unconditional love feels threatening. 
Unconditional love feels like you could take advantage of it. Unconditional love, it, it seems like that there should be some cutoff. There seems like there should be a stipulation. There seems to be like there should be a parenthesis. But unconditional, no, no strings attached, no prerequisites, no bounds, no limits to the love of God. The religious people in Jesus' day, they were offended by it. But there was a group in Jesus' day who were attracted to this message, attracted to this idea. And no matter who you were, no matter what side, whether you were offended by what Jesus said or whether you were attracted to what Jesus said, it cut against everything you'd ever been taught about God. Because in the first century, in Matthew's day, people had been taught that God, he only loves certain people. That God only loves some people. And among those some people, God really loves the good people the most. And God loves the good people the best. And God's not for everybody but God's only for some people. And those some people are usually the good people and the religious people and the spiritual people and the people who know their Bible and the people who attend temple and the people who make all their sacrifices and the people who pay all their tithes. And, and those are the people that are in. Those are the people that God loves. Those are the people that God has a special place for in his heart. And when God pulls out his blessing bag, those are the people who gets the blessing out of the blessing bag. When it becomes treat time, it's the good people who get the treat. It's the good people who get the bone. It's the good people. And that was kind of the, the, the way that they grew up, that God's acceptance was tied to performance. The better you performed, the wider that God's arms became. The better you performed, the deeper God's love for you. They were taught that God's forgiveness, it wasn't free, it had a price. And so there were sacrifices they had to make. There were prayers that they needed to make. There, there were good deeds that they needed to do. And this was the world that Matthew grew up in. And this was the audience that Jesus spoke to. And he was shattering those ideas. He was shattering categories. He was shattering labels that people had been taught all of their lives. Categories, labels, and lists that were based on a hierarchy of sins. You know, there were little bitty sins. There small sins and medium sins and large sins and extra large sins and supersized sins. And, and as long as you could stay away from the large and the supersized, I mean, you know, you were on a pretty good sin diet and, and it probably wasn't gonna go that bad for you. But you got up there and started ordering the supersized sin. Hey, you're gonna burn. You're gonna burn and it's gonna be hot. You're gonna be a crispy critter. And, and so this is kind of the world that they grew up in. It's like, okay, as long as you're a sinner, but you're on the little sin spectrum. And, and so they had all these categories and, and you found out whether you were a little sinner or a mid-sized sinner or a big sinner. Were you the best of sinners or the worst of sinners? <laughs> and you found your place somewhere in that caste system, somewhere in that classification system. That's how you found out how God felt about you. That's how you discovered what God thought about you. The system told you, the hierarchy told you. And out of the hierarchy of religion came the determination of who was in and who was out, who was invited in and who was excommunicated who was loved and who was not loved, who was gonna be blessed and who wasn't gonna be blessed, who had a place in the family and who didn't, who had a seat at the table and who didn't. And so Matthew, he's talking about this good news and he's telling us that all of these people, they were drawn to it. Some were attracted, some were offended, but they were following Jesus around and they were going from place to place to see what he was gonna say next. And word was spreading all throughout the Galilean you know, region and all throughout Syria, Matthew even says. People were talking about Jesus everywhere because of his message. And then what Matthew says next, 
Maybe it should take our breath away. Maybe it should shatter all the lies that we have believed about God that aren't true about God. Listen to what he says. He says, and when Jesus saw the crowds, when Jesus saw them, he just didn't look at them, but he saw them. He looked and he looked long enough to know what was going on. Jesus didn't walk around with, you know, naivety. Jesus didn't walk around, you know, you know, pie in the sky or head in the sand. Jesus, he looked at people and when he saw people, he saw them. He saw their lifestyle. He saw their habits. He saw their bad decisions. He saw their inconsistencies, how they're up one day and down the next. He saw their hypocrisy. He saw their struggles. He saw their confusion. He saw their weaknesses. He saw their failures. He saw their sin. But there was something about Jesus. He was able to look beyond all of that. He was able to look beyond their lifestyle, beyond their habits, beyond their bad decisions, beyond their inconsistencies, beyond their hypocrisy, beyond their struggles, beyond their confusion, beyond their weaknesses, beyond their failure, and yes, beyond their sin. He was able to see it all and even be able, he was able to see beyond it. He was able to see outside and over and beyond the categories and the labels that have been placed by society or by politics or by the religion of the day. So he saw everything. I mean, he had the full scouting report. And you know what Matthew says? When he saw them, he had contempt for them. Is that what he said? No. no. Some of you are like, oh, I don't know. I hope it's not true. I've not read this port in a while. Uh, but this is what many of us would expect based on how many of us grew up in church. That when Jesus saw them, when Jesus sees us, that because he sees it all and because he knows it all, that he's just... He's got contempt. He's filled with condemnation. He's filled with anger. That's the Christianity many of us grew up with. That was the Christianity many of us have unfortunately experienced. That, that was the message that we got from the sermon because the guy up there, he seemed so angry and he seemed so upset at all the people who weren't there because you can't keep your job if you're always peed at the people who are there. So you know who you get ticked at? The people who aren't there. You know who you preach about? The people who aren't there. You know what sins you talk about? Not the sins of the people who are there, but those on the outside, the big, the supersized sins. Because we're just gonna pretend that nobody sitting there had any of those. But that was kind of the message we got. That's kind of the message that we see on social media from Christians. It's like Christians are filled with such contempt, such condemnation when they see people, when they hear people, when they look at the world. But this is what Matthew really recorded, that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. And that is better news. That's good news. This word compassion, this is the same word Jesus used in his most famous parable, the most famous story that he ever told, the story of the prodigal son. And you remember the story of the prodigal son, you know, the prodigal son, you know, the little brother, he came to his father and said, dad, you know, I've been waiting for you to die so I can get my inheritance, but you just won't die. Can we pretend that you're dead and you go ahead and give me your inheritance because I don't want to be here with you. I don't want to be here with mom. I don't want to be in this family anymore. I just want to go. And it was an unthinkable story because Jesus said, you know what the father did? The father actually liquidated the prodigal's portion of the estate and gave it to him and he left. 
And he went out and he just lived the life that he thought he wanted to live. And he was free to do whatever he wanted to do with whoever he wanted to do it as often as he wanted to do it. And then there was a part of the story where Jesus said, and then all of his money ran out. And he kind of reached the bottom. You remember this? He, he got to the bottom of things. He got to such a bottom of things that he decided, if I'm gonna survive, if I'm gonna live, I'm gonna have to do the most unthinkable thing for a Jewish person to do. I'm gonna have to take care of pigs. And so he ended up living in a pig pen, taking care of pigs. And he was covered in the slop and the mud and the mess, and it was horrible. And in the midst of it, one day he kind of comes to himself and he looks at himself and he says, oh my goodness, what am I doing? What have I done? I think I'm gonna go back home. And I know, I know, I know. I know my dad will never receive me. I know my dad won't even probably wanna meet with me, but I'm gonna beg if, if he'll just be willing to make me a servant there on the property. And just let me work. He doesn't even have to look at me. He doesn't ever have to talk to me. And so he rehearsed this big speech. And Jesus said, when that prodigal started going back home, that the father, remember this part of the story? The father saw him. Why did the father see him? Because he was looking for him. The father saw him. And when the father saw him, Jesus said he had compassion on him, not condemnation for him, not contempt for him. Because when the father looked down the road, he saw what a father is supposed to see. He saw his son. And in that moment, the father was able to look beyond what had happened. The father was able to look beyond what had been said and what had been done. In that moment, the father was able to look beyond the mud from the hog pen that was still on his son's body and face. He was able to look beyond the stench, which was a reminder of all of his son's terrible choices. He was able to look beyond the pain of that broken relationship, beyond the disappointment of his departure. The father looked at him and he saw him and he looked beyond all that had happened and he loved him. And he had compassion on him and nothing had changed that. And the father embraces him in Jesus' story. The father embraces him as though nothing had ever happened. And not only that, but he throws a party for the son. He says, hey, let's put a robe on this guy. Let's get him cleaned up first, of course, but let's get him clean. Let's put a robe on him, put a ring on his finger, put some sandals on his feet and somebody, hey, hey, somebody get the New York strips. We're gonna have a party. He didn't really say New York strips, may have been a ribeye, but I, I, I don't know. But he said, kill that fatted calf and let's have a party. You see, the son had broken the father's heart and the son had broken the fam family's rules and the father's rules, but the son was never able to break the father's love. Amen. And this is how Jesus, according to Matthew, saw the crowds. When he saw the crowds, it was like how the father saw his son in the story of the prodigal son. He had compassion on them. And if Jesus came to be with us, to reveal God to us, then we're learning something about how God sees people, about how God sees you and how God sees me and how God sees all of us and how God sees everyone on this planet. Matthew's trying to drive home this idea that God loves you and he isn't mad at you. God loves you and he's not mad at you. Some of you, you've been carrying around for years thinking that God's mad at you, that God hates you, that God's against you, 
that everything that bad has happened in your life is God trying to get back at you for all the bad things that you did and all the bad things you said and all the things you did and shouldn't have done that Matthew wants, he says, listen, God, he loves you and he's not mad at you. You may be mad at yourself and there may be some people mad at you, but I'll tell you who's not. God's not mad at you. And when he looks at you, now, Austin, uh, Upchurch, our campus pastor in Somerset, he, he sent me a text earlier this morning, just a really great word of encouragement. And he said, you know what, what you're talking about today, he said, some of us, we've heard it, we need to hear it more, but there's some people who, this is gonna be the very first time they've ever heard this. And maybe this is you. Maybe this is the first time that you've ever, ever heard this in your life, that God loves you, he's not mad at you. And when he looks at you, he's able to see beyond all the stuff. He's able to look beyond all the failure, all the disappointment, all the confusion, all the weakness, all the failings. He, he's able to look beyond all of that and he sees you. And when he sees you, he loves you. Amen. And he's not filled with contempt for you. He's filled with compassion for us all. And he reminds us of the good news that says there's forgiveness greater than those failings. There's grace greater than that guilt. This is Matthew's way of saying, God cares more about who people are than what people have done. Time out for a moment. We not so much like that. Matter of fact, many of us, we live by the opposite ethic. We care more about what people have done rather than who they are. And this is where we part ways with Jesus. This is where we part ways with our heavenly father because God, he cares more about who people are more than he cares about what they have done. Christians, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, part of the local church, what was true of Jesus should be true of us. Who people are should be more important to us than what people have done. And when we look at Jesus, we realize that Jesus cared more about sinners than he did their sin. And I know this is gonna shock you. I know you didn't expect to hear this today. And I know that some of you would have never dreamed it, but I am a sinner. I'm not sure why you're laughing. But as a sinner, if I could just step to the top of the top, you know, the front of the line and just say for a moment, if that's true, for me, that is great news. It is good news. Really good news. You say, well, how is it possible? It just doesn't seem like it should be possible. How does God not lose his willingness to forgive? How does God not run drive patience? How does that not happen? Because it's what he sees when he sees us. Listen to what Matthew says next. He said, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said they were harassed and the word harassed there means it was like they'd been torn into pieces. That when Jesus saw people, it was like they'd been attacked and ravaged and afflicted and tormented and molested. They were confused. They didn't know up from down. They didn't know right from left. They didn't know right from wrong. They were hurt. They were harassed and they were hurting themselves and they were hurting others. And he said they were harassed. And when he saw them, it was like, oh my goodness, look at those people who are being ravaged. They're helpless. 
It's like they've been tossed aside like garbage. It's like they've been forgotten and discarded and dejected and rejected. It's like the word that was used in the first century for a sick person who was just cast aside and left for dead. That's how Jesus saw people. Not as little sinners and big sinners, but as harassed and helpless and sheep without a shepherd. And sheep without a shepherd, they're defenseless. Sheep without a shepherd, they become victims of their own appetites. Sheep without a shepherd, they wander off and they lose their way and they can't find their way. They become lost. And Matthew says that when Jesus looked up and he saw the people and he really saw them, he saw them as harassed and helpless and sheep without a shepherd. He saw what sin was doing to them. Jesus saw sin as this terrible evil, this terrible force that was destroying lives, that people were harassed by sin, torn to shreds by sin, molested by sin, abused by sins, robbed and beaten and left for dead by sin. That's how Jesus saw people, as though they were helpless. They'd just been forgotten. They'd been left aside. They'd been disinvited. Religious self-righteous people had nothing they wanted to do with those people. These people were drowning in the waters that sin had pushed them into. And when Jesus saw them, it broke his heart. And when his heart broke, compassion came forth. And if that's the way Jesus saw people, that's the way God these people because Jesus came to us to reveal God to us and so I just want to take a time out for just a moment pastor time out if that's how Jesus sees people let me ask a question why are so many Christians so angry not by a show of hands because it would be embarrassing but how many knows an angry Christian some of you couldn't couldn't restrain could you, you just had to throw it up there that's okay uh, Why are so many Christians so angry with so many people? I'll tell you, Brother Bart, I'll just tell you. I'll just go and tell you right now, Brother Bart. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. I just believe it's righteous anger. It's righteous anger. It's righteous. It's righteous anger. I believe the Greek word is indignation. It's righteous indignation. Maybe. But I'm afraid for so many Christians, what started off as righteous anger has become unrighteous hatred. Can you imagine seeing someone drown in a pond, drowning in a river, drowning in a lake, and getting angry at them for drowning? Can you imagine seeing someone beaten, attacked, without mercy, without restraint, and getting angry at the one who is being beaten? You say, who would do such a thing? Christians. Christians do. Christians have. Christians are. People drowning in their sin. People beaten and ravaged and harassed by their sin. People helpless and defenseless to sin like sheep without a shepherd. And what do we do? We get angry with them. We have contempt for them. We pull out the menu of big sins and supersized sins and we point at them. We preach about them and we insult them and take cheap shots at them. 
So I got my convictions. Well, bless God, let me tell you something about your conviction. If your conviction allows you to withhold compassion, your conviction stinks. I just think theology is important. Well, me too, brother. And I'll tell you, any theology that allows you to withhold love, mercy, and grace, it's crappy theology. That's another Hebrew word. I'm a scholar. You say, doesn't God get angry at sin? Oh, oh, yeah. God gets angry at sin, but not sinners. And hating sin which we all should because of what it does to people, because of how it harasses them and tears them to shreds, how it causes them to wander away and lose their way and become hopelessly lost from finding their way home. Yeah, we should hate sin because of what it does to people, but hating sin is never a right or an excuse to mistreat a sinner. It's just not. Jesus was able to stare in the ugly face of sin and still see the beauty in the face of sinners. And again, as one, that's good news. That Jesus is able to stare in the face of sin and love sinners. You say, well, that's Jesus. I'm not Jesus. <laughs> no, sir, you're not. <laughs> Finally, we agree. But if you follow him, Jesus says, you gotta take your cues from me. Don't take your cues from cable news. Don't take, t- don't take your cues from talk radio. Don't take your cues from culture. Don't take your cues from your favorite politicians. Take your cues from me. Let me lead the way. Let me teach you the way. And then Matthew wraps it all up and he says that, then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Ask that the Lord of the harvest, ask the Lord therefore to send out workers into the harvest field. Now, I just wanna point out one thing and then we're ending this. Notice again, Jesus is teaching us what he sees when he sees people. He didn't see them as a problem to be eradicated. He didn't see them as an enemy to defeat. He saw them as a harvest, a harvest that was to be harvested and brought in to the barn. He saw them as valuable and worthwhile. People who needed to be swept up and invited into the kingdom of God. So Jesus, he took his disciples and he pointed out there and he said, look at those fields, look at those fields, look at those fields. He wasn't looking at real fields, he was looking at the people. And he was speaking as a metaphor, he says, look at all these people. Look how hurting, look how harassed, look how helpless, look how confused. It's like they don't know right from left or up from down or right from wrong. It's like they're lost and they can't find their way home. It's like they've been ravaged and savaged by sin. Look at them. They're a harvest. But as long as you see a threat, you'll never see a harvest. And as long as you see a problem, you'll never see a harvest. And if you see a problem, if you see an enemy, then you just need to stop for a moment and pray, God, would you break my heart for the things that break your heart? God, God, would you open my eyes and let me see the way that you see, feel the way that you feel. And God, would you remind me that God's heart leans in the direction of the messed up, jacked up and screwed up. Would you remind me of that? When I start getting self-righteous, 
When, when I start, you know, getting on my soapbox, when I start just condemning and throwing out judgment and wanting to give a lecture to anybody who will, would you just remind me that your heart leans in the direction of sinners? The people whose lives are just so messed up and jacked up and screwed up, I don't even think I can understand it. That's where God's heart leans. Say, how do we know? Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that means that the Father's heart leans in the direction of those whose lives don't have it all together. Those who are not good at being good. Those who have been disinvited by religious self-righteous types. That God's heart leans in the direction of those who are barely struggling to keep their head above the water. Who are so weak, they keep falling down time and time again who've wandered away without a shepherd and they can't find their way home and every path feels and looks like maybe the right path and they're just trying every single one of them because they're lost and they can't find their way God's heart leans in the direction of those who just get it wrong even though they want to get it right that's where God's heart leans because when he sees them he sees them as harassed and helpless and sheep without a shepherd Matthew is telling a great story. And no wonder it'll be Matthew a few lines later who will say of Jesus, a friend. Jesus, a friend to tax collectors and sinners. A friend. They know you. And even though they know you, they still love you. This just wasn't a writing assignment for Matthew. This was personal. Because for Matthew, most of his life, the path that led to God seemed just too steep. Religion had told Matthew, who was once upon a time a tax collector, Matthew, you're not good enough. Matthew, you don't measure up. There's no place for you, Matthew, and your kind in God's family. I hate to tell you there's no seat for you and people like you at God's table. But Matthew tells us the story of how one day Jesus walked up to him and said, I've got room in my family for you. And I'm inviting you in. And I've got a seat for you at my father's table. And I'm inviting you to it. That was the day that Matthew's life changed for the rest of his life. His ideas about God began to change. Those categories and those labels began to shatter. Matthew told us what Jesus saw because once upon a time when Jesus saw Matthew, he was harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd until Jesus stepped in and changed everything. No wonder Matthew tells us the story that he tells us. The genealogy, that wasn't meant to bore us. That was meant to entertain us. Jesus from Abraham who pimped out his wife. How disgusting. From his grandson, Jacob, who was a swindler. How scandalous. That Jesus came from women like Tamar, a widowed woman who became a prostitute who slept with her father-in-law. Matthew puts her in the family tree of Jesus. David, who killed his lover's husband. Solomon, 
who died in idolatry. Manassas, who turned the temple into a brothel. And Matthew puts all of them in the genealogy of Jesus to say, don't ever forget, Jesus came from sinners, for sinners. Amen. He's the one that won't break the bruised reed, who won't snuff out the smoldering wick. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is the only God man has ever heard of. Jesus showed up in history like a doctor, like a nurse, like a medical professional or an EMT. And when he stepped onto the scene and when he walked into the room, he didn't come to assess guilt and he didn't come to assign blame and he didn't come to appropriate justice. He didn't come to condemn or give a lecture came into the world not to condemn it but to save it Jesus a friend of sinners Jesus a savior of sinners he loves you no matter who you are no matter what you've done and I pray beyond the noise of whatever's going on in your heart and life maybe for the first time you'll hear it and you'll feel it that despite it all religion shackles us with guilt and shame and burdens and heavy yokes but Jesus said I've come to give freedom I've come to offer rest God would you remind us that we are loved by you that we are known by you but we are perfectly loved by you there's freedom in that there's joy in that there's peace in that there's gratitude in that Pray, Father, confirm that in our hearts today as only you can. In Jesus' name and everybody everywhere said.